Jesus, in your presence there is no guilt, in your presence there is no shame. So by the power of your word, would you please free us. In your name, amen. Just before I preach, I want to take just a minute to say thank you to you, the congregation. In April, we let you know about some budget shortfalls that we were having in the church and told you about salary cuts that we've made and program cuts that we've made and asked if you could help for you to help. And you did. And we are very grateful for that. April and May were much better months. And between the salary cuts that we've made and you stepping up the giving, we have been able to balance our budget the last couple of months. So thank you. You guys are a great congregation. Also, just give you a gentle reminder to continue that. <laughs> know that uh, sometimes in the summer, many of you uh, take the summer off. You go on vacations. We know that because our bank account always reflects that every summer. Uh, so before you go or after you get back, just send in that check. But mainly what I want to say is thank you so much. It is just a privilege to serve you. You guys are just, you guys rock. You're awesome. One of our staff was in Los Angeles last month, and he sent me an email and said that he was driving to his hotel on a Sunday morning, and he heard a traffic report that said that Wilshire Boulevard was closed for an unusual reason. As part of some kind of protest, there was a naked man standing on the roof of the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> and services had to be canceled that day, go figure. And he ended his email to me by saying, so if you think you've got problems at first press, count your blessings, Pastor. So nobody get any ideas, right? It, it certainly adds new meaning to the hymn, just as I am. <laughs> that story has almost nothing to do with this sermon. But I thought it was weird and I wanted to tell it. And the sermon is on getting free from shame and apparently that man figured out how to do it. So by the end of the sermon, who knows what's going to happen. This is the last sermon in a series on how Jesus' miracles give us a preview of what the kingdom of God is about. You see, this is important because when Jesus does a miracle for someone, it's not because he loves them more. It's because he's giving all of us a glimpse, a preview of what the kingdom of God is about. And the ultimate healing that all of us are going to have if we know Jesus, eternal life with him. And the kingdom of God won't fully be here until he returns, but we get little bits and pieces of it right here and now. And we've seen in the past, in this series, that the kingdom of God is about things like reconciliation between us and God and us and each other, closeness with God, the restoration of our bodies, justice for the poor. In the story we read last week, which immediately precedes the one we read today, we saw that the kingdom of God is about returning us to our original design. And in today's story, we discover that part of that is being healed of our shame. Shame is something that affects all of us at some level. So if you're sitting there right now going, shame, mm, I don't deal with that, hold on. You know, a lot of times we think of shame as making us kind of timid or shy or insecure, but it can also do the opposite. It can make us anxious to achieve and succeed, to cover over all the things we feel ashamed about. As I said last week, there's nothing wrong with achieving as long as it's the natural outcome of our pursuing something we love. But if we feel we have to in order to be accepted, or if we fear failure because we'll be embarrassed, then we are bound by shame. We are not free. And our shame can hurt a lot of people. It can cause us to avoid deep relationships and withdraw because we're haunted by the question, what if they find out my secret? It can make us a bully as we try to compensate for what we feel shame over. 
It causes us to avoid God because we're just sure that he must be mad at us. He must be ashamed of us. That was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden, right? They sinned and then they hid from God. In fact, I think one of the biggest reasons we do not experience God in our life is because our shame blocks it. Because we run away from him. Now, I want to be clear. When I say shame, I'm not talking about healthy conviction of our sin. That's different. Conviction of sin comes from God. Shame comes from the devil. Conviction of sin is God saying to us, I love you and this is not my best for you. Shame says, you jerk, you rotten person. Conviction of sin is God saying, I've got a better way than this. Do you want to try it? And shame says, you're all messed up and you have no hope. Shame is a toxic emotion that poisons our lives and our relationships. And it comes from all kinds of places. Sometimes we feel shame about something that we've done or guilt. But you know what? A lot of times shame is put on us from other people. We're told growing up that we're ugly or dumb or or we're not worth spending time with because our parents didn't. Sometimes we feel shame because of some wound we've received in the past, like abuse Sometimes it's because we don't seem to fit a cultural norm that we think we should fit. I know a man, he's kind of a very, very kind of alpha male guy, does a lot of extreme sports, but he says to him the three most terrifying words in the language are, let's play basketball, because he's not very good at it. And in our culture, to be a man who can't play basketball, that would just be humiliating, so I've been told. Not that I would know that in any way personally. (laughs) Never personally experienced that. Sometimes churches can make us feel shame because we come in and we think, man, everyone here's got it all together and I don't and I'm a mess, right? That's why some folks get nervous to come to church. I heard a speaker once jokingly say, do you ever come to church and think, man, I must be the worst Christian in here? Because if you think about it, someone has to be, right? <laughs> this is, right? Someone has to be. And there's just something about church that makes us go, is it me, Lord? No, no, we're all messed up. If you are feeling shame about something right now, if you've got some kind of problem in your life, trust me, you are not alone. Just look around. Look at us. We're a mess. You're at home. You're not alone. Where do you feel shame in your life? Where do you feel others are going to, what do you fear others are going to discover about you? In the story we read today, Jesus frees two people from shame. The first is a man named Jairus who was an important ruler of the synagogue and in a culture where religion was more important than business or politics, that meant Jairus had a lot of status and a lot of prestige. In the case of a woman, the woman with the hemorrhage that, we, that shows up later in the story, you have a down and outer, but Jairus is an up and inner. Okay. <laughs> Makes him sound like a belly button, doesn't it? <laughs> he has money, he has status, he has power. But you know what? There are a lot of traps to being on the up and in, aren't there? A lot of social pressure to look good on the outside, live in the right house, drive the right kind of car, have the right kind of job, send the kids to the right school, and a lot of shame if you don't keep up. One of the most heartbreaking things for me recently has been to hear people tell me that they're having severe financial problems because of the economy, but that they are afraid to tell anyone. They even have a hard time telling a pastor in confidence because they feel so much shame, even though it's not their fault. It's the economy. That is the pressure we feel in our east side culture. A lot of shame out there. The other person bound by shame in this story is the woman with the hemorrhage. If Jairus was up and in, she is on the down and out. Jairus has a name. She has no name. 
and she has been shamed. For starters, she's a woman in a culture where women were considered property. Not only that, but she's had a hemorrhage for 12 years, probably a menstrual flow that would not stop. And according to the custom of the time, that meant that she was unclean. And anyone who came near her would be unclean as well. Which meant that no man would marry her, no employer would hire her, no one would be her friend. Her family would have cast her out years ago. She couldn't even worship God. They'd have kicked her out. And she is so bound by shame that whereas Jairus approaches Jesus head on, she sneaks up from behind and says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. She's trying to hide like a lot of shame-bound people, trying to hide. To make matters worse, the text says that she'd spent all of her money on doctors and they hadn't helped. What you've got to understand is back then the standard treatment for bleeding was, was one of two things. Either to carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg, very helpful, or better yet, carry around donkey manure in your clothing. Don't know about you, but that's always worked for me, right? <laughs> what a great picture of how we will try anything but Jesus to deal with our shame, won't we? We'll try hyper-achieving to cover it up. Or hyper-morality to convince ourselves and other people that we got it all together. Or we'll sink back into insecurity. None of which works. Okay, that's all the depressing stuff. But this story comes from the Gospel of Mark, and gospel means good news. So here's the good news about shame. Jesus shatters the chains of shame in our life. You see that in a couple ways in this story. The first thing he does here is he personally calls us by name. This woman touches Jesus in secret, and that heals her. But then Jesus stops, and he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And that first word is the most important. This woman, who has been called every name in the book except for a nice one, suddenly see, hears herself referred to as daughter. Can you imagine after all of these years what that one word must have meant to her? With that one word, Jesus heals 12 years of shame. What are the names you've been called? Dumb, ugly, not worth my time, loser, or just as destructive, successful, achiever, the subtext of which if you stop achieving, you won't be respected. Jesus does not call you by those names. He says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you, and in my presence there is no shame on you. And when we experience the intensity of his love for us, it drives shame right out of the picture. Shame cannot stand the power of his love. It withers in his presence. And the best place to hear that for me has always been prayer or worship. And not the kind where we go saying a lot of stuff, but where we ask God questions and listen for his answer. When we did the soaking prayer conference in March, there was a session where the facilitators said to go to prayer and ask Jesus, Jesus, what game would you like to play with me and why? And to be honest, I thought, oh, please, this is just so corny. And to be more honest, I was also thinking, okay, I'm responsible for this conference. I feel shame right now. Well, we did the exercise, and then they asked if anyone heard anything, and I was thinking, well, good luck with that. But then this one guy, for those of you who are there, you remember this one guy named Brian, said he asked Jesus, what game would you like to play with me? And he got one of those thoughts he knew had to be God, and it said, Red Rover. Okay, how random is that, right? I mean, that's got to be God, right? When was the last time you thought about Red Rover? When you were six? I mean, it's not like there are Red Rover championships on ESPN. But what a beautiful answer. 
It's personal. Red Rover, Red Rover, send Brian right over. Called him by name. One guy heard Jesus say, I want to play music with you. And for this young man, that was confirmation of a call he's been feeling to a career in, mu in music. And it brought tears to his eyes because Jesus called him by name, said, you're my son. This is who I made you to be. This is your original design, and I'm going to affirm it in you. And that just deflated shame and gave him this incredible sense of worth before his Lord. When you hear the God of the universe call you by name, call you son, call you daughter, call you by your original design, the intensity of his love withers shame. Can't stand in his presence. Second way Jesus breaks the power of shame in this woman's life is he gives her dignity by accepting her just as she is. Jesus doesn't say, ooh, ick, oh, you got a problem, ooh, go away from me. I'm an important person. No, he does the opposite. He stops his mission to go heal Jairus' daughter to talk to this woman. Now, Jairus is rich and powerful. He's a religious leader. This woman is considered a nobody. Now, as the story goes on, Jesus does eventually go and heal Jairus' daughter, but the disciples don't know he's going to do that. That's why they get so impatient, right? They basically say, come on, Jesus, this woman's already been healed. Check it off your to-do list. Come on, let's go help powerful religious guy. Right, we get him on our side. We've got it made, Jesus. He can promote you, Jesus. You could be senior pastor of First Pharisaical Church in Jerusalem. <laughs> Come on, man. Let's get with the program. Stop wasting your time on this nobody. But to Jesus, nobody is a nobody. And he doesn't say to this woman, get away from me, you unclean woman. And he doesn't say that to you. And he doesn't say that to me. He calls her daughter, and he gives her dignity, and then he restores her to community, and he breaks 12 years of shame. And then later, he also deals with Jairus. When he heals Jairus' daughter, he's also healing Jairus' shame because he's showing Jairus that he's loved not because of who he is or what he's accomplished, but simply because God loves him. And he doesn't have to achieve to be loved. I've told you before how my wife had Bell's palsy about 10 years ago, and we were doing college ministry at the time, and that is not the environment where you want a paralyzed, odd-looking face, especially at Stanford where image is everything. Well, every September I'd hire a new crop of interns who would work with me for a year, and we were having the new interns over to our house for dinner for the first time, and Christina was a little bit nervous to meet them with her face paralyzed. And as the first one came through the door, Christina put out her hand and said, Hi, I'm Christina, and I have Bell's palsy. Without missing a beat, the intern responded, I'm Rebecca, and sometimes I get cold sores. It was just brilliant. <laughs> I mean, she didn't treat Christina with pity or disgust. She accepted Christina just as she was. What's your shame? Jesus doesn't look at you and say, oh, whoa, what a mess. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you just as you are, not as you should be. I also love you enough not to leave you the way I found you. The God of the universe is focused on you. You are sons of the king. You are daughters of the king. That makes you princes and princesses. You are dignified by him. And then the third way Jesus breaks the power of shame in our life is to use us in his rescue operation to this world. I love what happens in this story. After Jesus heals this woman, it says she came and fell at his feet and told him the whole truth. 
Now, this is evidence that her shame has been broken. Whereas a few minutes ago she was hiding in fear, right, trying to hide her condition. Now she publicly declares it. Her shame becomes the pulpit she stands in to tell the good news of Jesus. And in doing that becomes part of God's rescue operation to shame-bound people by letting them know he can set you free. You know, you guys know me well enough by now to know that shame has been one of my companions in life. A lot of that came from peers who, who did some wounding stuff when I was a kid, kind of went beyond normal kid stuff. But it has also been a place that God has done a lot of healing over the years. I remember one point in particular after my first wife had left me. I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. It took me three months to tell my parents. It took me six months to tell my lifelong mentor. And then I did it by letter. And he sent me a very compassionate, gracious letter back, which gave me the courage to call him on the phone. And I remember just pouring out my heart on the phone, all the pain, everything. And when I got done, there was this pause, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, the problem with you, Scott, is... And I thought, I, I just poured out my heart, and your first sentence starts with the problem with you, Scott, is? Take a pastoral care course, bud. <laughs> Who made you my mentor? The problem with you, Scott, is you have constructed this glittering image of yourself that you hide behind. A whole lot of achievement to try to convince people you got it all together and hide your insecurities. And now it's come crashing down, and you're embarrassed. But what you're going to find out, Scott, is that None of us were fooled by that glittering image anyway. And now you're going to see just how much we love you and how much God loves you. And you never needed that glittering image in the first place. And this is going to be God's grace to you. And I said, oh, no, hmm. I was getting a graduate degree in English at the time, so I had a way with words. <laughs> and I realized that he was right. I had so much shame inside that my primary emotion was not grief at losing a marriage, but embarrassment. And all I could think about was what would other people think of me? And do you think that might have had something to do with why she left me in the first place? Do you think? And in that moment, I did not feel shame. I felt convicted of my sin, but I did not feel shame. And in that moment, I felt as if God himself was standing next to me with his hand on my shoulder, saying, Scott, you are not alone. And you have nothing to be ashamed of because I am proud to call you my son. And I could feel his love inside me physically and it began to drive shame right out of me. After that, I started opening up about the divorce, especially to my friends. And my friendships got a lot stronger. You know, one of the best ways to find relief from shame is to tell your secret to someone you trust. I mean, the relief is absolutely exhilarating. And now I've got friendships that are transparent and filled with joy and adventure as we work in God's kingdom together. And then God gave me a role in his rescue operation. He gave me a story to tell about how he can bring good things out of bad things. The God of the universe believed in me enough to trust me with that story. I must have some kind of worth if he believes, me, believes in me that much. So why should I feel shame? And it didn't get rid of all my shame, but it got rid of a whole lot of it. And that's proven by the fact that I could just tell you that story. Something that would have been unimaginable to me 18 years ago. So where do you feel shame? Will you invite Jesus into that place? You know if it's a memory from childhood, one of the things I found helpful is to relive it in my mind but then with Jesus there and say, Jesus, in this moment when this happened, what were you saying to me? And what are you saying to me now? 
and then listen for the answer. If it's just a general sense of shame or a sense that I better achieve or I'm going to be rejected, just maybe get some trusted friends around you to say, you know what, this is who you really are. And speak God's truth into your life so you can stop listening to the enemy's lies. But most importantly, ask Jesus to personally call you by name because when you experience the intensity of his love for you, shame doesn't stand a chance. doesn't stand a chance. One of the students from my college ministry is now a professional baseball player. He used to play for the Padres. Now he plays for the Milwaukee Brewers. And he and his wife were here last summer when the Padres were playing the Mariners. So many things I could say right now, but I won't. And we had lunch with them, and my son, who was six at the time and just loves baseball, sat right next to him. But my son was too shy to say anything, just didn't speak the whole lunch. But the whole time, Jody, my friend, kept talking to my son. And he'd feel my son's, son's arms, and he'd say, wow, what muscles. I mean, you must really be able to hit that ball. I mean, you're getting huge, man. You're just huge, right? And he signed baseballs for each of my kids, and the whole time, my son said nothing. But that night, when I talked to him, my son would not stop talking, right? Jody said I had big muscles, and Jody said I must really be able to hit the ball, and Jody said this, and Jody said that, and Jody, 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 Jody. And I noticed that my son was walking a little taller because a major league baseball player noticed him and called him by name and affirmed him. And if that's what a baseball player can do for my son, well, then what can the God of the universe do for you when he calls you by name and heals your shame. In the Old Testament, after a plague of locusts has destroyed Israel's economy, God gave a promise through the prophet Joel. So whatever your shame is right now, whatever it is, call it to mind and listen to what your father who loves you says to you. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and never again will you be put to shame. That's his promise. Life without shame, walking as sons and daughters of the king. So Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make it so. Heal us of the places where we are bound by shame, set us free in your name and we will give you all the glory. Amen.